0: This is Undisciplined, I'm Matthew LaPlante. About 50 years ago, researchers in Greece unearthed a really amazing mural on the walls of ancient buildings on the Greek island of Santorini. The mural was painted about 3,500 years ago, and it depicted a bunch of playful monkeys. Monkeys swinging, monkeys dancing, monkeys leaping. Now, there weren't any monkeys on Greece 3,500 years ago, none that we know about anyway, but historians figured that the artist or artists had come into contact with monkeys via trade with Egypt, which, of course, is just across the Mediterranean Sea. And that was that, monkey mystery solved. But a few years ago, some primatologists got a look at the mural for the first time, and something immediately jumped out to them that the historians had missed. And as Sherlock Holmes might say, the game was once again afoot. Joining me to talk about this new mystery is Nikki Pareja. She's an archeologist and art historian and the lead author of a new paper in the journal Primates, which doesn't just rewrite the history of this mural, but also offers enticing new clues about trade during the Bronze Age. Nikki Pareja, welcome to Undisciplined.
1: Thanks, I'm so excited to talk to you.
0: This mural is amazing. It's It's playful, it's bright. Do you remember the first time you came across it?
1: Oh my gosh, yep. <laughs> That's so funny you ask. It was my first year as an undergrad at Indiana University.
0: What was the context? Did you see it in the class?
1: I did, yeah. I was taking a class. I was, you know, like one of those first year undergrads. I was absolutely sure I was going to become a philosophy professor. Lo and behold, of course I have not. Um, <laughs> I was furious about the fact that I had to take gen eds, those stupid classes that make you well-rounded. And believe it or not, uh, I had my mom pick out my first semester of gen eds. So she signed me up for a class she couldn't pronounce, which I now know was Minoan and Mycenaean art. And it was taught by Kevin Glowacki. And he mentioned one day in passing, as we're flicking through some images, you know, look at these monkeys. They're blue. And at the same time, over there in Egypt, we also have monkeys depicted in wall paintings, but they're painted green. Huh, isn't that weird? And he just moved on. Matthew, that was it.
0: Really? Like you had this one little thing and you're like, I'm in love with monkey paintings in Greece and I'm going to dedicate the next however many years of my life to it?
1: Okay, so maybe it wasn't quite that advanced (laughs) of a thought right away. (laughs) There was just, there was something about that that just can't be all there is to it. So it just spent a little while investigating sort of the Egyptian side of things and what the connections could be. And it all just seemed like it was nicely tied up in such a clean little package that Maybe that really is all there was to say about it.
0: And the assumption was that these monkeys were a species from Africa. They had variously been identified as baboons or vervets, all all species that were present in northern Africa at that time. And we knew that Egypt and Greece were trading partners way, way, way back when at that time. How did it come about that you or somebody else thought, Oh wait, this isn't so nicely and neatly tied up and that we need to question this assumption.
1: I guess I should fast forward you a little here. So <laughs> I fell in love with them in undergrad and then wound up pursuing my PhD so I could honestly so I could learn more about them. While I was working on my PhD, while I was looking at my dissertation, it occurred to me that a lot of the imagery that we're seeing, in particular a few of the really important wall paintings from the Bronze Age, look really similar in composition to what we're seeing out of Mesopotamia, to what we're seeing out of Anatolia. And that got me wondering about maybe comparisons there. And then I found out that they have monkeys too.
0: You're not a primatologist, but you've now become very familiar with the species that's depicted on the painting. What are the clues that the painting depicts a monkey that may have come from this very different part of the world?
1: So... In a lot of the articles that you've probably seen coming out, I think Smithsonian, those guys, the dead giveaway that they go for, because it's very clearly there, is the way that they're holding their tails. And what's really important about this detail is that their tail carriage is a position that's commonly seen, but it's by no means the only way that they carry their tails. So that's, that's for the langurs. Our Hanuman langurs from India carry their tails in S-shapes and C-shapes, and there's of course a range there in between, and there are some sort of more extreme postures where the end of the tail can touch the body of the animal, things like that. And then we have vervets from sub-Saharan Africa who also have a range of tail positions, but... Their tails have different types of postures, and although they are capable of still having S and C shapes in their tails, they don't exhibit that kind of carriage as often as langurs do.
0: So you learn this from primatologists, right? From monkey experts. You you put these photos of these frescoes in front of these experts, and they go, "Oh yeah, that's that's a langur. That's definitely a langur." And it becomes increasingly clear that the ancient Greek painters were very likely not painting a vervet monkey or a baboon, but they were painting a langur. And okay, so so that's all well and good. But now we have this other bit of mystery on our hands because where did the langers come from
1: that was the other part of that was sort of the archaeological side of the study we had to figure out if it's possible to even trace any kind of connection between the indus i mean langers are indigenous to parts of bhutan and nepal and india so we had to kind of back up and think okay is there any possible way that we can find any evidence for this kind of connection and the more you look the more you find
0: And so you're starting to make these connections, and and one of them is like mineral trade, right?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So I'm getting goosebumps, like full-body goosebumps, because this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, One of the most compelling pieces of evidence comes from the fact that lapis lazuli, that beautiful blue stone, the really high-quality stuff is almost black. It's so blue. Um, it's got these flecks of, of pyrite or fool's gold in it. So it really, it almost looks like the night sky. This stuff is amazing. And it comes from one place. It comes from Badakhshan, which is located in Afghanistan. That's the only place in the old world. So Europe, Asia, and Africa, where we have this stuff naturally occurring.
0: So now you have not just one connection, but two. You've added monkeys from a painting to to what, like the geological assessment of the chemicals in minerals that are found in Greece?
1: Yes. So lapis lazuli is, because it only comes from one place, is so valuable to yeah. all of these different ancient cultures. And so if you think sort of backwards, if you think about it more in terms of, well, when we find lapis lazuli in a location, we then know that through whether it's direct or indirect exchange we can then prove a connection from that location back to at least afghanistan where the mines are originally right
0: and this is also the direction that people would have had to travel generally speaking to get a langer from place to place or or to go to a place where langers were let's talk about that because There are, I guess, two different ways that a person in ancient Greece could have seen one of these monkeys. Either they went to it or it came to them. Do you have a hunch?
1: Or both.
0: Or both.
1: Yes. So it's, I don't know. Of course, I would love for the answer to be that we have Minoan people venturing all the way to the Indus and people from the Indus going all the way to to the Aegean. But this isn't supported by any evidence. So of course, I can't go out on a limb and say that. What we do know, and what's, again, I'm getting goosebumps, (laughs) what's again really exciting is that when you talk to experts who work with material from the Indus, there's a long and well-established connection between the Indus and Mesopotamia in trade. And when you talk to people who focus in the Aegean, There's a long and well-established trade between the Aegean and Mesopotamia. We just haven't widened our scope enough for people who specialize in the Indus or in the Aegean to realize that the exchange is reaching really much farther just indirectly. We're using Mesopotamia as a middleman. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if it were Mesopotamia... Or possibly even a little bit farther west, maybe somewhere in the Near East, where we're seeing this sort of confluence of cultures and where we're seeing this overlap between our Minoan artists or our other Aegean artists and our monkeys.
0: Okay, but here's the other thing that really sort of blows me away because these paintings are of monkeys in action they're they're holding their tails in a certain way that is very distinct to this species of monkey you you can see the motion in this fresco and what that suggests is that the artist wasn't just looking at a monkey pelt or a stuffed monkey that got shipped along with wh- whatever else was on these trade routes most likely these people were looking at live monkeys
1: oh i can hug you yes yes <laughs> absolutely so if you have the image up in front of you and you look closely at the faces of these little guys now make sure you're only looking at the original fragments because in the reconstruction the stuff that we don't have that's not from an original fragment looks really smooth and really nice and all the other stuff looks kind of chunky but we have three nice well-preserved faces on the original fragments and if you look closely they each have highly individualized features yeah. Now, this means that we're not copying artwork that we're seeing out of Egypt. If you think about Egyptian artwork, you know, it's very kind of stencily I guess, would be a yeah. <laughs> not art historical t- term to use. It's very, you know, monkey, monkey, monkey. It's not this monkey, that monkey, and the other one over there. So really what we're seeing here does seem to suggest that they observed these live animals in motion. You absolutely hit the nail on the head.
0: So what is this means? So we have this better knowledge now of trade routes. We also have to have this assumption that we're not just talking about bits of minerals that were moving back and forth, but, but trade routes that were strong enough and, and robust enough that you could transfer a live animal across thousands and thousands of miles. What does this tell us about the lives of people in these three regions during the Bronze Age?
1: Oh man, they were so much more connected than we give them credit for. It's exciting to think about because while I've been sort of narrowly considering land trade routes, one of my colleagues, half in jest but half totally serious, goes, Why on earth aren't you considering the sea routes? Oh my gosh. Right. So right. now I've got <laughs> so now, now, now I've got a lot more thinking to do.
0: Do you, you have a thought? I mean, we know that there was trade across the Mediterranean at that time via sea route, but are there, were there shipboard connections that that could have been made?
1: So that's a really good question. We do know that there are a handful of—I don't even know if it's a—if it's enough to make a handful at this point—but we do know that there were some ports located along the edge of the Indian subcontinent. Right, the port towns all had their own sort of specialties and connections, and some of these specialties and connections we can see showing up in some other port town or near port areas. For A good example is carnelian. So carnelian is this gorgeous red agate stone, and there are very specific shapes that are being created in the Indus, and then we see those shapes appearing again in Mesopotamia And there, the beads get cut up into smaller pieces and or they have these really cool like bullseye almost patterns that are being etched into their surface. Well, we found a few of those beads over on a really far western island in Greece. So we can see these footprints almost emerging of this indirect exchange, you know?
0: This is a lifetime of little tiny bits of evidence. And many people's lifetimes of tiny bits of evidence that that answer this much larger question, which I guess that's what science and research is. But I mean, you're part of it. We were talking before the show about how much you love doing field work. It's got to be because you have this opportunity to like at any time, just glance down or glance up and and find something that's going to make that connection all the stronger.
1: Yeah, it's. It's, I don't know, there's no better word. It's just wild.
0: (laughs) So this study is a very cool cross-disciplinary paper. Your team included archaeologists and primatologists and art historians and anthropologists and a taxonomic illustrator. What was it like working with so many different people from so many different specialties?
1: It was an absolute blast. It was a delight. Our team could not have gotten along better. I don't know. We just, we, we work well together. We work quickly together. Pretty much everyone but me <laughs> knows, <laughs> knows their way around monkeys. I'm the archaeologist art historian. So it was really, it was my job to put it all in context. But the everything that they observed from the wall paintings, from the general proportions of the monkeys, which is, you know, is some of the more nuanced evidence for the reading as langers as opposed to vervets. Yeah, from the facial features to the shape of the ears to their gestures and their overall grace. I mean, they each picked up on so many different facets of what it is to be a langer that it was wonderful hearing the way that that each one of their minds works individually and then the way that we could pull it all together to have this kind of project
0: You're in Philadelphia. There is a zoo in Philadelphia. There are langers at that zoo. Have you been to see them?
1: (laughs) No, I haven't, unfortunately. I have, however, um, my brother, as crazy as it's going to sound, my brother lives in the UK right now, and his big thing is he saves his money for close encounters with animals so that he can, like at at a sloth sanctuary, he had a sleepover with a sloth like that.
0: (laughs) Oh my God, that sounds like the greatest thing ever.
1: Doesn't it? And so, so he kind of half-jokingly, kind of half-not, sent me a video of his close encounter with Langers. And he said that it was amazing watching them fly around and how certain figures wanted to be more dominant than other figures. And some of them were just going for the food and, and watching all of their temperaments. And so in the video, it was, oh, I'm so jealous. I would love to be able to get some some FaceTime for lack of a better term. So he sent me that video shortly after our publication came out and, you know, he just, he had the experience a little bit earlier and just didn't really, you know, think much about it until I sent him a copy of the article. And he was like, Oh sis, you got to see this. (laughs) I'm glad he did.
0: So this cross disciplinary effort between, Art historians and other researchers, it, it reminded me of a study I read a few years ago about how climatologists were using landscape paintings that were hundreds of years old to better understand climate change based on like what sunsets looked like, which also was another one of those studies that just blew my mind. And and here you're talking about how much fun you had with this this team, this interdisciplinary team What's preventing us from doing more work like this?
1: I I don't I don't know, and the only thing that springs to mind is going to make me sound like a total jerk. So, oh my God, <laughs> if there are any Aegean prehistorians listening, please turn this off. <laughs> I think a lot of it is sort of an ingrained fear of not being able to do it yourself. I think there's a lot there's a lot in scholarship that kind of gives you this idea that like no like there's a way to find the answer. You just have to find it. And I don't know. I there's a part of me that thinks it's kind of common sense to just pull in a primatologist, because I don't specialize in that stuff. <laughs> My specialization is the art, not not the critters.
0: You adjunct at a bunch of different places, and and you have all these different roles. Do you think there's something to that, like where, where you're bouncing around from place to place, and so you're just. You're not just thinking in your own building, in your own department, in your own little wing. You sort of got to be thinking in terms of what collaborative opportunities are out there.
1: That's true. I never really thought about it that way. Yeah. Being on the road certainly allows for a lot more opportunity to have conversations. (laughs) But yeah, I guess when you put it like that, I guess you do realize how much you do rely on other people.
0: I'm wondering if, like, I've never thought about identifying species in paintings as its own, like, sub-discipline of art, history, and archaeology. But given what you've learned about potential trade routes in the Bronze Age from this, are you interested in looking to see if there are other works of art out there with animals that we've always thought were one thing but might totally be a different thing and and might tell us a different story about different parts of the earth in the ancient world. Oh, Matthew. Yes, that's a yes.
1: That is a firm and resounding yes. Just in the last month or two, a colleague and I dropped another article where we talk about the possibility that peacocks and possibly even amphibious snakes were imported, possibly imported, or maybe just their iconography came over from the Indus to the Aegean because we find other evidence. Some of the evidence includes a wall painting where there's a fella who's, (laughs) we call him the priest king or the lily prince, but we've since figured out that he's, he's actually probably not fully reconstructed the right way. But the important thing is that at the end of feathers there's a bunch of feathers kind of coming out of his cap the way he's reconstructed right now but at the end of those feathers if you go back and you look in the original excavation reports written by sir arthur evans back in the early 1900s he mentions very specifically that there are peacock feathers and matthew where do peacocks come from
0: okay i i actually don't know the answer to this question where do peacocks come from
1: the indus So, I mean, think about it. If you think about this kind of stuff and this sort of information that we've always taken for granted, like um, were you one of those super nerdy kids in high school that got really into mythology?
0: No, but my daughter is a super nerdy kid in high school who is super into mythology.
1: So she probably read Percy Jackson, right?
0: Oh my God. Yeah, like five times.
1: So, okay. So if we think back to like Hera, right? The goddess Hera, the wife of Zeus. Her animal is a peacock. Meaning there's some point in history where the peacock became such like a common critter that we could understand. Sure. It may still be special and religious and all of that. And, and maybe even elite, but there came a point where everyone knew what that was, even if it was just the um, feathers. So to have an animal, like a peacock that comes from the Indus or peahen or whatever you want to whatever come all the way over, then surely that began somewhere slightly earlier. It might not have started all the way back in the Bronze Age in that specific case, but the more you look and the more you think and the more you reflect, the more evidence there is for these ties.
0: Is there any other group doing this? I think I said earlier it's like a sub-discipline, like a sub-sub-discipline of a bunch of different disciplines. Are there Besides your group, are there other people who have thought to re-examine these sorts of connections in these sorts of ways?
1: Well, everybody loves animals. I think most of us that are involved in, <laughs> in Aegean prehistory are are kind of super into animals. But we do have, gosh, we have so many of them. We were supposed to be having a big conference at Oxford this November about Indus-Aegean connections, and I can tell you that Jonathan Mark Kenoyer, who Oh my gosh, he is like the Indus guy. He knows things. He's been looking at connections in terms of Carnelian. And so ah, without giving away his research, I can't say much more. <laughs> but there are there are other people looking for these connections as well. They're just not always limited to animal iconography.
0: So what's the next question you want to answer? We've got monkeys, we've got peacocks and peahens. What's next for you?
1: Oh gosh, everything. The world, I don't know. <laughs> well, one of the... Actually, come to think of it, one of the other projects that I really enjoy is the color blue. How do you mean? Well, so we have things like, um, one of the cool things about the monkey wall painting that I was looking at in particular is that this is the wall painting that shows something that doesn't look like most of the other monkeys. Most of the other monkeys, we're pretty sure are some kind of baboon. But this is the one wall painting that would show a different species. So what's interesting though is that once we think about those other wall paintings and we look at this one and all of them are blue, Well, baboons aren't blue. I mean, even the ones that have bluish greenish body parts, like like the vervets, like their baboons, whether it's, you know, their tummies or, or what have you, it's not their whole bodies. So why are we painting the whole f- stinking monkey blue? That's weird. If you're familiar with the GN art, then you'll see that some of the human figures have parts of their scalp shaved. So they have, you know, a long black lock of hair, but the rest of their scalp is painted blue. And none of this just quite adds up. So finally, someone made the argument that, well, maybe, you know, gray is so ugly. Maybe all this stuff was like gray or like brownish gray and just not pretty. So they just figured they'd put blue on there to make it look nicer. When we slow down and kind of look at all of these things together, it did occur to me, I think we're dealing with a couple of things. The first one is visual instability. When we think about color, typically as Westerners, we think about hue. So in the ancient world, um, or at least in, in a lot of ancient languages, and this is where we start to get a little sciency, at least, we don't use terms for hue necessarily. So you wind up with terms like Homer's "the wine dark sea." Now everybody knows the sea's not red like wine, right? Right, um, right. But it has more to do with the visual effect, if you will. So what I'm proposing with the blue has more to do with iridescence and pearlescence and quick changing qualities. Things like if you shaved your head the first day, your hair is going to be so short, but we have the term five o'clock shadow for people right. who shave their face, right? Because right. you can see the difference already. <laughs> and then it was this Indus project that really set it off. Lapis lazuli. The kind that we use in wall painting is called Egyptian blue frit. It's a synthetic compound that's made in Egypt that can be used because it's stable enough to use in wall paintings like we have. The term in Egypt for that material, for that, that Egyptian blue, translates as fake lapis lazuli.
0: So there's this other connection.
1: Yes! And it's a linguistic connection. When we think about all of these these different little facets of what the ancient world was like, When you turn them just right, you can see for a second that connection, you know?
0: You get so excited when you're talking about your research. What is it that keeps you so upbeat about what you're doing?
1: One of the things I love the most about my work is the ability to bring it to the table when I teach my students and that ability to see what could be the next generation of archaeologists getting pumped about this stuff That's what keeps me teaching. That's why I love teaching.
0: That's Nikki Pareja. She is a consulting scholar at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania and was the lead author on a paper that changes the assumptions about the monkeys depicted on a Bronze Age wall painting in Greece. Nikki, thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: We've been broadcasting Undisciplined on Fridays at 2 p.m. for nearly two years now. But next week, we're moving to a new day and time. Catch us on Thursdays at 10.30 a.m. And if you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.